Amen, man, so good. If you have elementary age kids, we would love them to be part of our Vine Kids time. They'll be going right out this side door, out that direction to their classrooms. We'd love them to be a part of that time. Well, it's good to see everybody. Happy Halloween, I guess. I don't know, whatever it is. Devil's birthday, I don't know, whatever we're celebrating here. Um, but we're glad you're here. I noticed you're all in costumes. You look great, scary. Um, no. Uh, we are glad you're here this morning. It is an honor and privilege to have you in worship with us. Again, I just want to reiterate, if you are here for the first time, it really is our joy. We are grateful that you gave us uh, your Sunday morning. Um, we, are, we are honored that you would gather with us. And so um, you are right in the middle or kind of actually towards the end, actually, of a series we've been in for quite some time. As I mentioned during announcements, it's been 31 weeks that we've been exploring the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is hard. It's a really challenging Book And on some level, I've said this many times, it's almost unpreachable because it calls for so much more than we can do on a Sunday morning. Um, it calls for deep theological exploration. It calls for some uh, real deep internal checks of our own self and where we are and what we value. And so it almost needs to be taught in this sort of real deep kind of lengthy explor explorative way that we can't do on a Sunday morning. And so what we've tried to do along the way is hit the highlights and the high notes and figure out what exactly is at play. And as I mentioned, for the majority of the book, it's been a theological exploration. It's been the author trying to get this group of Hebrew Christians to understand that life in Christ is so much better. Because they're facing all kinds of opposition from culture and from family and from people to return to Judaism. To basically get rid of this idea of Jesus and return to the way of life that they came from, a way that was better, the way that embraced Moses and the law and all these kind of things, and actually return to the culture they were part of. And our author is making this plea to say, don't return to the cultural norms that you were a part of. They aren't better. In fact, Jesus is better in every form and every way. And he spent, we spent the first six weeks exploring why Jesus is better than the angels, better than the law, better than Moses, why Jesus is the great high priest. All of these things our author has been laying out. And he's been making this theological case. He's been building it for the reason Jesus is better. And he's been encouraging these believers along the way to not give up, right? To not give up following Christ even when life is really hard. Even when they're facing opposition and struggle and difficulty. To keep trusting Jesus, believing that God is good and that God is a deliverer, God is a rescuer, God is a provider. We've explored these things over these 30 weeks. And as we got to the end of chapter 10, everything began to turn towards the practical. It was no longer an exercise in why, it was an exercise in now what. So we move from the why things are to the how we begin to live these out, the now what questions of the Christian faith, which means if I've got these things held in my heart to be true, if I believe that God is who he says he is, if I believe that Jesus is better than all that life has to offer, how do I begin to live out those truths even in my own life? And the author gets extremely practical. And he does it in the context of community. And I've said this before, there probably is no more difficult place to be a believer than to be a Hebrew Christian in the first century in Jerusalem. Because you were at the opposition of all of culture and all of family. You didn't have this historical picture of a narrative of the church to fall back on. You didn't have scripture as we have it today. You didn't have a 31-week Bible study on Hebrews or on the purpose-driven church. or You don't have podcasts. You literally just had each other. And you had the letters that were being circulated and you had the community. 
And so you had to decide if this stuff that you were hearing and believing and experiencing about Christ was worth risking your life for. And our author, or really, as I've been saying, our preacher, because Hebrews is really more of a sermon than it is a, um, a, a book, per se, or a letter, per se, like a lot of the other um, New Testament letters. He's impl- imploring, he's pleading with these Hebrew believers to just say, just trust the Jesus that called you, that saved you, and walk with him. And let me show you how to do that. And so he gives all of these things, and he turns to the practical. And so for the past really month or so, we've been looking, or more than that, probably two months, we've been looking at the practical. And so now what we're beginning to see is the practical is going to shift a little bit away from the individual, from what I have to do, what Treb has to do as a follower of Christ, to more who we are as a community and how do we do this together. Because the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. No portion of it actually was meant to be lived alone. We were not called to be isolated. We're not called to just exist with church online or church in podcasts. We're actually created to be in authentic relationship with each other where we're known and we know people. And you can test that theory all through Scripture. Begin with Genesis and run all the way through Revelation. You will see that God's redemptive plan for humanity is a plan of community. It's a plan of not doing this alone because it is impossible. The whole of community is part of what it takes to follow Jesus well. And our author is going to say that to this group. He's going to say, remember, life is hard. Following Christ is hard. And you need people. You need people. And perhaps maybe now more than ever before, at least in my lifetime of 39 years, right? Ish. (laughs) Plus a few. In my lifetime, more than ever, we've never seen a need for community, I think, like we do now. We've never seen a drawdown in the church like we've seen post-COVID. In a lot of ways, 2020 was fine. It's 2021 that's hard. 2020 was fine because the church existed in the places that it needed to be because we were told there were things we couldn't do. So we met in the park, we met online, and everybody was super gracious because they were just happy that we could try and do something. But post-2020, 2021 is hard because we've developed different rhythms. We've fallen into different safe spaces and pockets of culture. We've pushed back from gathering together as a church. We've begun to love our Sunday mornings for different reasons. Gathering becomes more of a chore than a joy. And so more than anything, probably now, these words that we're going to see in Hebrews this morning are vitally important for us because they're essentially about life together, that you cannot do it alone. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we started this idea in chapter 12 about the Christian life being a race. Therefore, right, we got to run the race marked out for us. That we are called to throw off all the sin and the things that so easily hinder, right, and run with perseverance. This is the call. He equates the Christian life to this kind of long-distance run that's going to take perseverance. And then last week, Brandon really opened up the idea of God's discipline, that in this race of the Christian life that is going to be hard, God is going to lead, but God is going to discipline. God is going to guide paths. God is going to be the directive. He is the great and perfect and holy Father. And when you couple those things together, what we're going to see this morning is the call for the church, the body, the community, to understand that it's running something that's going to take all of our effort. That God not only will lead, God will correct, but it's going to take the whole of us together being excited and and motivated about where we're headed so that we see and value the success of all believers, and that we don't lose one along the way. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be in Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 this morning, just five verses. We're in the home stretch of all this. After chapter 12, we've only got one chapter left, which I'd love to tell you we've finished by the end of the year, but we won't because we're going to do some things over Advent and we'll jump back into it in the new year. But we're getting really, 
close. And at the core of our thought process today is six truths that we are called to both have and fall into as individuals, but more so as a community. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then let's unpack them together. Lord, I love your word. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing, even soul and spirit, joint and marrow. You tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, you tell us that your word is your very breath. It is the breath of God. Lord, it is alive. And we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly, God. We will be in it every moment we gather together. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us through it this morning that you would let my words fall away and that your word would stand true and that, Lord, you would encourage where you need to encourage, that you would empower where you need to empower, that you would convict where you need to convict, that you would bind up where you need to bind up, Lord, that you would use your word to sew our hearts together. Take a moment in your own heart this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you something, just whatever it is that he wants to press onto your heart, just ask the Lord to teach you and ask the Lord to make your heart receptive. Just pray those things in the stillness of your heart. Lord, teach me, make my heart receptive. Just open your heart to the word of God this morning. And as we do each week, let's take a moment and pray for the people around you. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Be in the habit of praying for other people Even if you don't know them, pray for your spouse or pray for, hopefully you know them, pray for the other person next to you. Pray pray for them even if you don't know them. Pray that God would move in them. Pray that God would do something miraculous in their heart. Just pray for the people around you. Care about the spiritual welfare of others as we're going to see this morning. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to be glorified in our words, in your word, in our prayer, in our worship, all of those things, God, that you would be lifted up. Teach our hearts this morning, Lord. We know we won't discover you in these pages. You will reveal yourself to us, for you are the God who begins all things. You initiate movement with humanity, Father. We don't discover you. You reveal yourself to us. And so we ask you to reveal yourself to us this morning through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up on this idea in chapter 12 of this endurance run, this difficult road ahead that the Christian life will be hard. In fact, he says, we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, sin that easily entangles, throw it off, run with perseverance, the race marked out, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's chapter 12's opening. And then we move into this idea of God leading, God disciplined, God correcting. God will run this path with us. He will mark it out. And it won't always be easy. We will take the correction from the Lord as this sort of great heavenly father, great heavenly coach, leader, provider. And then he's going to turn our attention in verse 12 to the community and say, here's a few things that you've got to anchor yourself to as we run this race. Because the Christian life, truthfully, it's hard. It's not easy. And this is what he says. Excuse me. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral 
or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could not bring about change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. <clears throat> so I'm actually going to back up two verses in 12 where Brandon kind of ended last week. I think he ended 12 and 13. And I'm going to back up there because it uses that little therefore clause. It's that, that connective clause. It's that piece that ties what was before to where we are now, right? We know that about Scripture. And so chapter 12 has that therefore clause basically saying because of this race, because the Christian life is hard, because the difficulty of head, because you have to run with perseverance, because God is going to be disciplining you along the way to correct your heart and guide your path, there are a few things that you've got to remember and got to understand. And he says this, he says, therefore, in light of those things, there are things that you are going to have to prepare for. And I think there are six of them here. And the first one is the idea of bracing yourself. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So he's saying, listen, in light of this race that you're going to run, this race is going to take perseverance. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge. You're going to have to throw off the sin and things that easily entangle, and you're going to run the race, fixing your eyes on Jesus. God along the way will lead you. He will discipline. He will correct. That doesn't actually make things easier. Being corrected by the Lord is hard. It's hard to hear. It's hard to understand in the time. But God is moving and doing. In all of this, he says, therefore, basically brace yourself for feeble arms and weak knees. Now think about that imagery in terms of athletic events. I know a lot of you have been athletes or you're athletes or you were involved in things as a kid. And when you get involved in physical activity, whether it be a sporting event or a race, eventually your body hits a place where it just doesn't want to move anymore. It just gets really hard to keep running, to keep exercising, to keep lifting, to keep whatever it is. And you develop truthfully feeble arms and weak knees where your arms don't want to do the work and your knees no longer want to run. The imagery is tied to this idea of the race that's marked out for us, that this Christian life is not a short run. But it's a long run. It's an end game. And along the way, it's going to be challenging. And some of that challenge is because life is hard. Some of that challenge is because you're going to face opposition. Some of that challenge is because you're going to be taking correction from God along the way. But at some point in time, you're going to get winded. You're going to run up against that place in your heart that's just despondent, that's just discouraged, that's just in despair, that just says, I don't really want to go anymore, much less if I could. My knees are weak. My arms are feeble. Like I just am hunched over and I'm drawing breath and I'm winded. And he's giving this imagery saying, I want you to understand what lies ahead. And it's not supposed to be this thing like, hey, get ready, it's going to be terrible. It's more like the reality of life is this. No matter how good things are, there comes a time where it just gets hard. Life just gets tiring. You just get worn out. And you can be walking with the Lord and things can be great. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to get worn out and your legs aren't going to get tired. Rest is real. The need for rest is real. And so our author basically says, I want you to prepare for it. Because it's what you don't see coming that will kill you. And I want you to understand that part of running a race means that you've got to understand that you are in a, a body that is temporary, that is going to need bracing, that is going to need help. And that's why community is so vitally important. It's because it's not something you can do on your own. You can't be a great athlete and operate totally as a solo artist. 
Great athletes have teams of people, medical people, trainers, coaches, people around them that understand the way their bodies move and work to help them heal and be ready. Teams are built this way. That when somebody gets weak, you put the effort on somebody else, on the team. Like literally, the idea is that when you know the difficult is coming, you understand that you're not built to manage it alone. In other words, if you are struggling and tired and worn out, the answer is not to just continue to put the weight on yourself. We talked about this last week or two weeks ago when we took a little break from Hebrews while we were on our all-church retreat. We talked about spiritual rest. Spiritual rest being that part of our life that is not about doing less, but it's about fully giving in to Jesus and carrying the yoke that is light. We talked about the idea of rest being the part of us that just says, I don't just have to push through. But true rest is a spiritual thing, and we got to prepare our hearts for it. And so he says, listen, I want you to brace yourself for the reality that your arms will be feeble and your knees will go weak at some point in time. If you haven't experienced it, you will. Sometimes it happens a lot. Sometimes it happens every now and again. But the truth is we all run into it where life is just hard. It's just difficult. We're just tired. It doesn't have to be something overwhelming. We don't have to have extreme loss and terrible things and our children run away or whatever. It just has to be the fact that we run into a wall and we just feel like we can't go on. And so he says, brace yourself for that. In other words, be prepared for that. And he says, you're going to have feeble arms. You're going to have weak knees. Make level the paths so that the lame may be disabled, may not be disabled, but rather healed. He said, this is a community problem as well. Part of this call is not just for you to be ready. Life is going to be hard, but for you to work so that your life can be an encouragement to others. He says, make level the ground where your feet is, where your feet are. Make level that ground so that when those who are disabled, right, When they begin to run, they won't go lame, but they'll be healed. And he's not talking about a physical healing. He's actually talking about the fact that we are called to fight for one another, to level the ground so that those that are having a hard time, those in this imagery who have gimpy legs or or feel like they're broken or are disabled in terms of just where they are spiritually, that they may not stumble and live that way forever, but they'll be healed. That the community is called to help level the ground when things are hard. In other words, we're called to shoulder the burden for other people. We are called to carry each other's struggles, to carry the burden. That as Moses raises his staff, the community gathers around him and holds his arms up. The idea of running a race in community means that you are not created to do it all on your own, but that we are called to level the ground so that others won't fall. And this is going to be important as we expose these other, uh, or look at these other five things that we're called to because part of this call is saying part of who I am is that when I'm running well, I'm called to level the ground for others. In other words, when, when the Lord is moving in me and I'm not worn out and I'm running this race and things are clipping along, like part of my heart is to level the ground and look for those who are struggling to care about other people enough to where I don't want them to trip and to fall and to stumble, but I want them to run and run healthy and be healed. The goal of the Christian life is not to solo cross the finish line. The goal of the Christian life is that the community meets Jesus at the end. It's not an individual race to be run. Yes, there are individuals in it, but we run as a community. And so he says, brace yourself because life is going to be hard. It just is. You're going to get feeble arms and weak knees, and if you don't have them right now, somebody around you does. So work on leveling the ground so that those who are struggling don't stay broken, but that they may be healed. In other words, just because you're doing great, don't forget about the people around you, right? See, it's when we're doing poorly that we begin to look around us because we begin to feel alone and we want other people either to struggle 
or to be in the same place. But when we're doing great, we don't seem to care about the people. And what he's saying is, is even when you're running, right, work to level the ground. In other words, keep your eyes on those around you. This is a community call. Be prepared because if your arms aren't feeble and your knees aren't weak, somebody else's are. So he said, brace yourself. And then he goes on to that next thing, which is live at peace. Make every effort, in verse 14, to live at peace with all men. And to be holy without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's the second part. Make every effort to live at peace with all men. This becomes the call of the community. And this is interesting, right? Because peace is this idea of concert. It's this idea of harmony. It's this idea that when we come together, we aren't all the same. And so when you make peace, you live in harmony, you live in concert with, you make the voices stronger together than the individual voice. The idea of peace is not one of simply tolerance and acceptance. It's one of actually collaborative heartbreak to bring different pieces together to make the bigger picture better than the sum of its, or the sum of its parts bigger than the individual voice, right? It's the idea of living in harmony, living in concert. This is the church, it's the body. One body, many parts, this idea of eyes and ears and arms and knees and feet, of which Christ is the head, is the picture of the church. And then we're called to live in peace with one another. And the church of all places is called to be that place of peace. It's called to be the kind of picture of this collaborative beauty that is the people of God. From all walks of life, all different places, all backgrounds, all heartbeats, all things, right? And we're called to live at peace with one another. And concert and rhythm means we may not vote the same, we may not act the same, we may not think the same, we may not use the same language, accents, backgrounds, but the truth is is that we all follow the same Christ. And therefore that uniting factor is the idea that we are called to live at peace. But the kicker word in this text there is the word all. Because it's one thing to fight to live at peace with a person in the same pew, I can kind of get behind it or whatever, but when it becomes the idea of living at peace with all men, life gets hard. Because you will get hurt, you will get burned, there will be bad relationships, someone will betray you, someone will hurt you, and they will hurt you deeply. The world will not care about you at times. The world will want to chew you up and spit you out, especially as a follower of Christ. Yet our call here is to live at peace with all men or all people. And I find this uniquely interesting because it's not somebody else's responsibility to live at peace. It is actually the responsibility of the follower of Christ. So if you're waiting for someone else to come and apologize and make it better for you, you will wait for forever. Because it's not their job. As a follower of Christ, living at peace is actually your job. You are called to be the peacemaker. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and not Prince of Tolerance, but Prince of Peace. He is the one that bridges the gap between the despondency in our own heart and the perfect relationship we are called to have with the Father. Jesus brings peace on earth because he reconciles the idea that we are once alienated in our mind, enemies of God because of our evil behavior. But through Christ, we are brought into harmony and relationship with the Father. That's why Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Not because he comes and teaches us all to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And we are actually called to carry that same weight of peacemaker, which means living at peace with the world around you doesn't mean that we tolerance at all costs, that we cave our to the moral ambiguity of culture. What it means is that we rightfully stand up and fight for the peace that comes from reconciling relationships of a broken world to a true, real, living God. But it also means that we are the ones that forgive. And we are the ones that extend the grace that Christ has extended to us. 
We're the ones that live with compassion and mercy. And if you're waiting for someone else to do that before you give that to them, you are wrong. If you're waiting for your father to forgive or to come and ask for forgiveness, you are wrong. If you're waiting for your coworker to make amends, you're wrong. You are called literally to be the person that makes peace. Why? Because that's what Christ did for you. Not because you're perfect, but because that's the extension of Christ's grace. That if he gives it to you, you're called to give it to other people. Live at peace with all men. Do your best. It doesn't mean that it's all going to work out. He says, do your best to live at peace with all. Which means it may not always happen. You may be kind and gracious and forgiving. And they may be awful and that's okay. As long as you are living on your end of the I forgive you and I love you and you can continue to hate me. But you know who you are if you're sitting here and there's a phone call you need to make or an email you need to write. It's not someone else's job as a follower of Christ. If God has forgiven and freed you, you're called to forgive and free others. Do your best to live at peace with all men. And you know what that begins here, actually? It begins in our building. It begins in your homes. It begins in your marriage. If you're waiting on your spouse... It's not the call. It's on you. Technically, it's on both of you, but you can only control your heart and your life, so technically it's on you. It begins here. The church is actually the picture of Christ's love to the watching world. It's why Jesus looks at the disciples in John 13 and says this, a new command I give you, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. In other words, the greatest evangelistic tool we have is how we love each other as followers of Christ. That's how all men will know we follow Jesus not because of what we say, not because of your great tweets and posts and all that, but because of how you love the other believers. Do your best to live at peace with all men. It means it's on you, it's on me. The third thing he says is be holy, right? Same verse. <clears throat> See to it, all right. Make every effort to live at peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I've probably talked about this a zillion times over the years, but the reality is the idea of holiness in Scripture is not one of, of this sort of pious, great religi religiosity. It's not that. Holiness is not about being perfect. Actually, the holiness in Scripture comes from the idea out of Leviticus. It's an idea of being set apart. It comes from a Hebrew word, kadosh, which means I've been set apart by God for a special purpose. So when God calls us to be holy as he is holy, he's not saying be morally perfect because I am morally perfect, although God is. He's actually saying you are set apart because of who I am. In other words, you are not called to collide and run and run and link with culture in terms of how you live. You are actually called to be set apart from that, to live wholly different than the culture around you. You are called to be holy. And more and more in our culture, we are being Faced with the idea of do I walk alongside culture and embrace what it's calling me to, it's moral ambiguity, it's challenging in terms of what it's telling me I need to be and seek. What pleasure is, what pleasure means, what material things are and what I should have. What's right and what's wrong is dictated by the people around me instead of by the word of God. The idea of being holy is understanding that I've been set apart and that may put me at odds with culture. It actually may create in me an outcast. It may make me an outcast as a church. It will set us apart from what culture says because we have standards that are not built on our own ideas or whatever culture tells us. We have standards that are built solely on the word of God. 
And when you build your standards solely on the word of God, they will run headlong into culture. And being, being holy does not mean I am perfect and you are not. Being holy means I am set apart to live according to God's standard and not the standard the world sets. And the church was facing the challenge of caving back into culture. It's no different than it is today. Eventually, the church is going to be washed over by culture. And we're going to start losing things like tax-exempt status and all those things if we don't comply to the cultural mandate. We're already halfway there. But it's not a new problem. Since the moment the church was born in Acts chapter 1 and 2, it has been in a fierce, headlong collision with culture. It's no different. We always act like things are so much worse now, but the truth is, they've always been bad. It's not worse today than it's been. Just read scripture. You're not jumping in dens with, or, uh, gladiator rings with lions, or as we saw a couple weeks ago, literally being sawed in two. Like, hey, things are better than that. But we do face the same pressure, which is caving my moral stance that is built on the things that have hold tight in the word of God to not be ostracized, pushed back, or ridiculed by culture. So the idea of being holy for the church is saying, remember who you are, church. You are not called to cave all of your morals and standards to culture so that you'll be accepted. You're actually called to be set apart. And it's going to become harder and harder to be the church over time. Because they're going to shout you down. But you are called to be holy, set apart, kadosh, the idea of literally being made for a different purpose. It's not easy. That's why it's a difficult, long run. It's a run of endurance that takes everyone. So we're called to brace ourselves, right? We're called literally to be at that place where we say, I know I'm going to get weak arms. I know I'm going to get feeble, our feeble arms and weak knees. I'm going to need the whole of the community. I know that. I've got to be prepared for that, that I've got to be remembered that I am set apart in this process, right? So the four things he goes on to say after that, if we brace ourselves and we're living at peace and we're living in holiness, the fourth thing he says is that we've got to be willing to care about the spiritual welfare of others. Listen to verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. So this idea is really one about, do you care about the spiritual lives or spiritual welfare of the people around you? If the call of the community is to see to it that no one misses God's grace, it means it is the responsibility of the community to know about the heartbeat of others. To exist in a place where you know and care about the spiritual welfare of the people around you. It's one of the reasons every Sunday I say, take a moment and pray for the people around you. Because everything that unfolds here is not about you. We've been lied to by our church culture to say that everything we do on a Sunday is about you. To come in and pick and choose what you want and make sure that you feel good when you leave. And we're going to try and have every possible option for you and your family so you'll want to come back. That's garbage. The reality is the church was called, right, to be a community that brings our talents and gifts and says, this is what I have to offer the community, not what the community has to offer you. But the way that we do that is by understanding that every heart that walks in this room has a name and is a life and has a spiritual relationship with the Lord. And that all should matter to us. And here's the thing. It's not that we don't care. It's that we're not truthful. And that's just the reality. I care about your spiritual lives. And I'm sure you care about mine. But the reality is we're not truthful with ourselves or with each other. 
It's more of an issue of inauthenticity than anything else. And it's your fault and it's my fault. Right? Because this is what we do to each other. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. Oh, good. Us too. Meanwhile, you know you haven't spoken to your wife in seven days. And for the first time in your life, you're actually scared that it won't get better. But when people ask you how you're doing here, right, the idea is I'm petrified of being exposed. It's why we can fight on the way to church and hold hands walking in. It's literally that exact reason that we don't ever really tell somebody when they ask us how we're doing that we're broken and struggling. And I'm actually wondering if God is even real. Because that conversation doesn't go over well. And actually, we don't want to put that out there because we're afraid of the ridicule or just what people may say or the fact that the family next to me is so stinking perfect. Like, they look amazing. But we dress for each other anyway, right? Because if not, we'd all be wearing whatever, cargo shorts or leggings or pants or whatever. Whatever. We wouldn't put on fancier shoes. I'm going to match my belt with my shoes for y'all. All right? It's not my choice. The belt I like is torn, and Meredith won't let me pull it out of the closet. It's just the reality. We're not authentic. And, you know, our culture doesn't help this at all. We've talked about this before. Social media fuels this garbage. It's not a giant ball of controlled inauthenticity. I mean, it's terrible, right? I mean, there are studies after studies after studies now. Just literally read any of them about how social media is destroying our mental health and the mental health of our children. Why? Because it's controlled inauthenticity. The idea is we can put anything forward we want to. We can make a picture of our lives, right, that has all the things that we want you to see and none of the truth. We know this, right? That's why you can make a post. It's like, oh, hey, pray for us. We're going to look at furniture for our fifth bedroom. And you're like, okay, on our knees right now. Hope you can find that couch or whatever. Or, hey, date night with the hubs. Helicopter to the top of the Devon Tower. Elk steaks. Hashtag blessed. You're like, I want to eat elk steaks in a helicopter. Like, how come it's another Arby's night here at the Prater household? And if it's not that, it's the, just the pictures, right? You're like, oh, I just posted a picture, no caption. But you took 500 of them to find the angle where you didn't have three chins and that weird thing with your eye wasn't happening, right? Or you filter or whatever. And it's just like this controlled thing of saying, just woke up. You're like, whatever, you liar. I can't even get out of bed. My knees hurt. Take a picture of that. But we do that, right? This is the place that we live. And it carries over to the church. It's not a problem of not caring. It's a problem of not being authentic. The church has ceased to become a place where we are true and honest with each other. And, it, of course, it's not going to happen on a Sunday morning. I don't expect you to walk in and be like, oh, you know, how are you doing? Oh, great. My wife cheated on me, you know, but we're all right. Oh, sorry, want a donut? Like, I don't, I don't expect <laughs> that. Like, I don't know how you live there. But in small group, in community, in places, that's where we're called to be this rich, real authenticity. It's why we don't want to be a church that just gathers on Sunday and says hi to each other. We want to be a community that's made up of smaller communities. It's why we want you involved in Bible study and small groups because that's where places are honest and real where we can actually say, like, I do care about you. And the fact that you are questioning if God is real, your marriage is struggling, or your kids are, are difficulty or whatever, like, we're here. We care about each other. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Do you know that just means don't let anybody around you miss the grace of God. Like, be someone that talks about it. Don't let them miss out that God is so good and that even in their difficulty, he's never going to leave them. Like, cry with them, weep with them, pray with them, celebrate with them. Care about the spiritual welfare of others. If you are here because of what we have to offer you, you won't last long. We have very little to offer. 
But if you're here because you want to get your life mixed up in people that care about you, this will be the place you will find home. We are called as a community to care about the spiritual welfare of others. Listen to the second part of that verse, the fifth thing. He says, right, don't let anybody miss out on the grace of God. I'll speed this up. And let no bitter root grow up and cause trouble and defile many. Bitterness. That's a doozy. Every time I do premarital counseling with a couple, I always tell them this. I say, you've got to fight bitterness with authentic communication because bitterness leads to resentment and resentment leads to death. It is a progression of sin, actually. Sin never, well, most sin doesn't just happen overnight. Sin grows. Bitterness grows. And it's interesting that our, our author chooses the idea of bitterness here. He's basically saying, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and fight against bitterness so that it doesn't grow up like a root. Does it develop into the soil of your community? And bitterness at its core is really this idea that there's a part of me that is really just focused on me. I'm mad or frustrated that something's happening to me and it's not happening to you. Or that you don't understand what I'm walking through. Or that I'm not getting what I deserve. Or that me, 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 right? Bitterness at its root is a selfish thing. And it develops in our marriages when we think the other person doesn't care about our needs like I care about theirs. Bitterness happens in our relationships when we believe that we're doing all the things and our partner's doing none of the things. Or they don't recognize the things that we're doing. And so I begin to get frustrated that you're going and doing this thing again. That you're sitting watching TV, that you're out playing golf, that you're out with all your girlfriends or whatever. And I'm here working or here doing this or whatever. And we just tuck that tiny piece of bitterness away. Not a terrible thing, not the end of the thing, but we let it go in there. We tuck it into that corner of our heart that's just like, I should have that or I should get that or why is nothing good ever happening for me? It's that part of us that walks through the difficulty and gets calloused. And we develop these little edges on our heart. And our author says, you've got to be careful because bitterness, what it will do is it will take root and roots don't grow overnight. They grow over time. And he says that those things are poisonous and they're disastrous and they're deadly. And they're deadly in relationships and they're deadly in church. The greatest way to fight off bitterness is to stay tender. See, because bitterness leads to hardness of heart. It leads to frustration. It leads to me not wanting to put my feelings out there, my heart out there, my, my, my life out there, because I don't want to care. I'm more mad about what I'm not getting, what's not happening for me, the recognition I'm not having, or the fact that your life is so great and mine is not. But when you stay tender, both to the hurt and other people and the hurt in your own life, and believe that God is good, all the things that we've experienced in Hebrews, that God is better, that God is good, that God is rich, that God has a plan and provides for your life, even in this long-distance race that's got difficulty in it, if we stay tender, we fight off bitterness. And if you stay tender in your own heart and towards other people, and some of us in here truthfully need to reevaluate our tenderness level because we have been really tender and wonderful to other people and really awful and hard to our spouses. We've been really kind and gracious to our friends, but really difficult and challenging to our children because they've rubbed those areas or pushed those buttons or I've really become callous to the people I work with or to my heart or to my boss or to whatever. Like Tenderness is the cure-all for bitterness. It's actually caring and fighting against the fact that this thing, whole thing is about me. But here's the great thing about it is that, or the interesting thing about it to me is that tenderness is, I mean, uh, the, the bitterness is contagious. He says, look, that root grows up, and you know what it does? It defiles many. Your bitterness is poisonous. It's poisonous to your marriage, to your family, and it's poisonous to the church. 
Bitterness is contagious. If you haven't experienced, you haven't walked in a marriage in a long time, right? maybe you've not been married, you haven't been in a marriage for a long time, you may not get how quickly bitterness becomes contagious. After being married 25 years, right, you understand that these things become contagious. If you've ever been in a church that you just watch the culture change, you realize that the bitter heart of a few can poison the entire culture. It defiles many. In other words, it's your job to rid yourself of bitterness and stay tender. And if it's all of our jobs to do that, then we fight against it. But it's really easy to become bitter. Brandon, I've talked about this a lot this season. We've had a rough go 2021. It's been hard, man. They didn't teach us this stuff in seminary. Like, hey, pastoring in a pandemic, 101. I just skipped that class, right? We didn't learn any of this. We didn't learn how to deal with the fact that families that we really love have chosen not to return for whatever reason. Some great reasons, some terrible reasons. It's hard. People that we've loved and walked with, people that I've wept with and cried over, cried with and sat through difficult things with have chosen other churches or some not churches at all. Like That's okay, but at the same time, it's hard on the heart for all of us. And it is easy to get bitter at times and just go, Lord, why is this happening here and not there? Why is this church having this? And, or why is this family who I've loved and longed for and did all their care for and stood next to when they gave birth to their child or when they got this horrible diagnosis, why is all of a sudden, why do I care so much that they just don't want to come anymore? And it's easy to just go, well, dead to me. It's what I want to do at times because I'm super sinful. But bitterness is contagious, right? And so we've got to fight against it and stay tender and realize this whole thing's not about me. I want the families in our church, if they're called or someplace, to go someplace else, I want them to enjoy that and love that and live that. And I want it to break my heart when someone just doesn't come back and they're not going anywhere. We want them here. We want you here. But if you're going somewhere else, great. But if you're not, we don't want you missing out on the call of community. We've got to fight against the bitterness that comes with that at times. If you've got any bitterness in your heart, whether it be for the church or in the church or in your marriage or for your children or whatever, you've got to fight it with tenderness. To just say, I'm not going to do it. It's not about me. I'm going to love people. Even when they hurt me, I'm going to love them. I don't want to see them get what they deserve. I don't want revenge. I don't want them to get what they have coming. I want to love them. And we fight bitterness with tenderness which means you fight the desire to punish your wife or punish your husband with words with the idea of loving them well. And that tenderness becomes contagious. And it's authentic and it's true. And then finally, and I'm doing this way too long, but finally is the last one, this. <clears throat> so we've got this idea, right? Brace yourself, live at peace, be holy, care about the spiritual for others, guard against bitterness, and then finally, fear and flee sexual immorality. Listen to that last section. After, it says this, verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterwards, as you know, when he wanted his inherit, inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So he says this, which he says, listen, as a community, you've got to fight against sexual morality and living life like Esau. What our author understands here is that this idea of sexual gratification or this idea of sexual morality or this idea of living life like Esau is one of fighting the urge to seek pleasure for the temporary right now. At the end of the day, sexual immorality is just seeking pleasure for myself now, right? 
It's desiring gratification here and now, whether that's through an adulterous relationship or whether it's through, you know, pornography or whatever it is. Like, it's the give it to me now that I just want pleasure for myself. It's the idea of instant gratification, which is what Esau was. Without getting too much into the story, Esau was this oldest brother who had a birthright. And he came in from hunting one day, and he was just super hungry. And so he decided that he would trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. That he was like, look, I don't care about the future. I don't care about the longevity of what, the life. I don't care about what the promises are. I don't care about the greater joy. I'm hungry, and I'm hungry now. So you can have all of that. Just give me some of that bean stew, which is exactly what it was. Lentil soup. Give me some of that lentil soup. You can have everything that the future promises me. I'm hungry now. So Jacob was like, and his mom was like, sure, you know, go ahead, have some stew. And Jacob inherited his birthright. And then they tricked the father, of course, into giving a blessing. And Esau has this epiphany where all of a sudden he doesn't want that anymore. He's like, actually, I want my birthright. That was kind of stupid. And so he goes and try and gets the blessing, but he's rejected, even though he goes back with tears, because Esau's not sad about his sin. He's sad that he lost his birthright. He's not broken as a contrite heart. He was fine with trading it. He just wanted it back now that his belly's full. What our author's saying is you're going to be faced with a lot of things that want to take your heart and instantly gratify whatever your desires are. The material world works this way. It works this way. I mean, it is the way that advertising functions in our culture, which is we want you to see what you could have right now and do whatever it takes to get it. Buy it on credit, trade for it, whatever it is to get that now, that'll satisfy you. And what does it do? It never satisfies, right? Sexual sin is the same way. It never satisfies because it's not the greater joy. It's not the greater promise. It's the actual fulfilling of a desire I have now which never leads to the glorification of God and the endurance of his great promises and the greater joy. It always leaves empty. Like Esau, I was hungry. I don't really care what I gave up. I just want here and now. The church is always pressed with this. The believer is always pressed with this, to choose the instant gratification over the promise of the greater joy of God. That's why saving yourself sexually for marriage is about the greater promise and greater joy as opposed to fighting the instant desire for gratification or of the flesh. This is the challenge of the great, of the great Christian life, which is, do I want relief, gratification, or whatever now, or do I want the greater joy of following Jesus that ends in maturity and depth and richness? Do I want a series of one-night stand relationships or do I want the length of a 25-year marriage of a partner that I love and care for? Well, in that moment, the world will say, choose the moment. It does it with everything. Choose the moment. Choose anger. Choose bitterness. Choose worry. Choose anxiety. Choose to fight. Choose revenge. That's the world. You know you want it anyway. It'll feel so much better if you can just put that person in their place. Send that email or that text. Be snarky, be mean. Just do it. You'll feel better afterwards. It's the culture of instant gratification. God says, how about ridding yourself of bitterness? How about pursuing being holy? And see where that leads us and gets us and try and win the heart of the person and care more about that than you do about making sure that they get theirs or that you get yours. And the scary thing about that is Esau desire, he had a change of heart. He all of a sudden was like, man, I want my birthright back. But Esau didn't have a heart of repentance. 
when we go to gratify the self, right, a lot of times we want to go back to what it was just because we don't like what we lost, not because we broke God's heart. The Christian life is actually a life of repentance. Martin Luther actually said it best. He said the entire Christian life is actually built on the idea of repentance, meaning that we will fail and God will forgive if our hearts are contrite and broken and we return to him. God is a God of freedom and forgiveness. But it is built on the idea of the broken and contrite heart. It's built on the idea of repentance. And repentance is understanding my sin, pleading for forgiveness for it, and God graciously giving it. Repentance is not, oh, that's crappy. I really wish I had it back. So God, can I get it again? When we pursue the gratification of the world, we do see what we lost. We would like to have it back. But until it breaks our heart, we don't truly know what freedom and forgiveness and repentance look like. If you've sinned, if you've struggled, even in this idea of sexual morality, you're not beyond the realm of being redeemed by the Lord. The idea is that God can redeem all, but let it break your heart. Go before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart, saying, God, I've chased the world. I've chased sexual or instant gratification, but I no longer desire that. I want you to free me from it. And God, it breaks my heart. And so I come to you asking for forgiveness. And the God of all creation will free you. But it lives in the place of repentance. So he's not saying that sexual morality puts us out of the boundaries of the community. He just says, that when you do sin, when you do blow it, when you do mess up, have a broken and contrite heart about it and repent for it. It doesn't just have to be the sexual side. It's anything that we go to please ourselves with. So if you've been mean or ugly or rude, if you've pursued bitterness or revenge or hatefulness or you sent that mean text message or that passive-aggressive whatever, repent from it. Don't let it become something like Esau that you're only sad for because you sent it. Be a person that is moved by this contrite and broken heart. Now this becomes the picture of the community, right? He said, this is why we run the race together because oftentimes we don't see these things on our own. We need the community to come alongside us and say, Trevor, I know you so well. I've walked with you. This is not who you are. Like, how are you doing? The community often understands the sin and the struggle of the community. It's why we exist to know and be known. When you live isolated in the world, at home, in your room, or in your house, without getting exposed to community, none of those things are on the edge of being seen. But when you live in community and let people know your heart, the Lord uses those things to identify the struggles. Sexual morality becomes something we don't fall into as easy because we have the community of people that love us and care for us. We have pictures of healthy marriages and beautiful relationships. And we hear stories of how that's ruined and hurt and defiled people. And we get mutual encouragement and accountability. It's why knowing and being known is a vital part of the Christian community. It's important. And it's why this race is called to be run together. Literally together. So he says, listen, brace yourself, right? It's coming. It's not easy. Fight for each other. Don't let anybody fall into this trap, right? Level the ground. Get your feeble arms and your weak knees and get your team of people around you and watch for the hurt of others. See other people that are broken or that are, that are crippled, that are struggling, that are hobbling and level the ground for them. Like be their champion, right? He says live at peace with people. Live at peace with people. Be holy. Seek to live this set apart life. Care about the spiritual welfare of others. Like this whole thing isn't about you. Right? Know them and let yourself be known. 
Guard against bitterness and fight the instant gratification that comes from things like sexual morality or just the desire to please yourself. This is how the community is called to exist. And this is why more than ever, we are called to live and engage in this together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to open your word this morning. The truth that comes in hearing these words, although we know them to be true, Lord, having you speak them to us is important because it's a reminder of just the vitality that we are called into as a community, the life-giving nature of the community of God. And a lot of us have gotten out of the habit of meeting together, the importance of meeting together, the, the deep need to meet together. We've told ourselves that we can do it on our own or that I can do it with just my wife or my husband, but the truth is we can't, we're not called to, and you don't desire that for us. You want us to mix our life up in community. You want it to be messy. You want it to be complicated. You don't want us to stray from the word of God. You want us to have the accountability that comes from people speaking into our lives. Look, life is hard. You want us to brace for it, to have our team of people to be champions for others. God, you desire for us to be set apart, to love and live at peace with people to care about the people around us, Lord, to fight against things like resentment and bitterness, to rid them of our own life and to rid them of the community, and to fight the cultural thing that just says, hey, please yourself. Take care of number one. What a garbage lie. Lord, the truth in all of this is Jesus. Lord, Jesus is the reason we can and the reason that we do. Lord, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You are the strength that gives us the ability to even hold together in community. Lord, we don't discover this community on our own. Lord, you are the Savior of people, Lord, that through Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, we have new life in Christ and new life together. Lord, apart from Christ, we are dead, fully and completely dead. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that as we talk about living and doing these things in community, we understand them in the context of a Savior that rescues and redeems and empowers and strengthens and guides and leads. And in the whole idea of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And so, Lord, these are not things we are called to do on our own. They're things that we're called to do in relationship with Christ, to surrender our desires to his, to give fully over to the lordship of Christ. So we as a community can demonstrate the love of Christ to the watching world. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.